I think, you know, one of the biggest challenges is that, you know, we have these kind of theories about how our programs work, but we have not tested those theories. So we can't say for sure, you know, what matters the most. So until we have that information, you know, we really don't know. On episode six of the Prevention Matters podcast, I chat with Dr. Katie Burkle from Arizona State University. Katie's work focuses on examining how community-based mental health and substance use programs are implemented and how this affects the effectiveness of prevention programs. We talk about the importance of implementation fidelity, the value of community-based research, and her favorite 80s movie. All of that and more on this episode of the Prevention Matters podcast. The National Prevention Science Coalition is the premier professional association dedicated to translating scientific knowledge into effective and sustainable programs and policies to enhance the well-being of children, families, and communities. To find out more about the National Prevention Science Coalition or to become a member, please visit www.npscoalition.org. And now the host of the Prevention Matters podcast. Dr. Robert Lachos. Katie Burkle is an associate professor in the College of Health Solutions at Arizona State University. Dr. Burkle focuses on reducing health disparities, including substance use, mental health, HIV, and other STIs, and obesity through research on the dissemination and implementation of evidence-based programs. She received her bachelor's degree from the George Washington University and a doctorate from the University of Georgia. Welcome to the Prevention Matters podcast, Katie. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So I want to first ask you about your background and your experience in prevention. How did you get into the field? Well, I was so fortunate. Um, I joined uh, the University of Georgia um, and, and, and specifically uh, Dr. Velma McBride Murray's lab um, right before the Strong African American Families Program uh, was going into the field. So um, I really got a, an, an experience in training that I think uh, few, few prevention researchers uh, get to have. Um, that's uh, one of the few evidence-based programs designed especially for African-American families and really tackles um, some of the, you know, issues related to health disparities head on um, by focusing on um, things like discrimination, like how do you talk to your kids about discrimination and racism and those things? How do you prepare them for that future and help them be, um, you know, resilient and thrive? And so when you were sent off to college, did you think that you would be where you are today? <laughs> well, I really had no idea. <laughs> um, I think when I when I first went to college, I was really interested in issues related to, um, well, first psychology, but also kind of um, justice issues and legal issues. I thought for a while about being a forensic psychologist um, but actually, as I studied at um, George Washington, I minored, I got a major in psychology and a minor in criminal justice and really just learned a lot about the um, kind of, you know, disproportionate consequences of, you know, certain behaviors and activities um, and how that they have really led to, um, to just the tremendous uh, disparities um, in our justice system. 
And so at that point, um, you know, I, I started to rethink my career choices a little bit. Then I volunteered um, for a while at, at a center in um, D.C., um, that supported, um, you know, women uh, who were having kind of stressful pre pregnancy experiences. And um, I got to see, you know, I got to know some of the social workers um, who supported them and just, you know, really like watching the amount of burnout uh, that that happens for those uh, those social workers who are kind of internalizing all the uh, the stress and and having to bring it fresh every day uh, with every new uh, case and situation. I was like, well, there's probably a way to prevent all this. Like, couldn't we intervene earlier and so um, you know reduce the you know, kind of stress and suffering of the moms, the babies, the social workers that supported them and 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 really everyone. Um, so that's kind of what led me down the the pathway to prevention. So when did you come across um, specific work in prevention science like um, Joe Durlach's work and, and folks like him? Was that in graduate school? Yeah, uh, let's see. I got into that piece. So I guess that really stemmed from when I was involved with the Strong African American Families Program, one of my responsibilities as a graduate student uh, was to code all the tapes for fidelity. Um, so it was a really interesting experience because the, the, the conception, conceptualization of fidelity has changed a little bit um, over the years. And at that point in time, it was kind of like, you know, you wanted, um, you wanted to basically make, you know, these, uh, efficacy trials of um, preventive interventions kind of similar to like a pharmacotherapy kind of a trial. Um, so, and if you're thinking about the, the program as, you know, um, it's like the intervention is kind of similar to the drug that you're testing and you want everybody to have the same like dosage and, and, you know, content of the pills. So uh, we, I remember actually having a, a conversation about, okay, we want everyone to have the, the you know, the, the same pill essentially. Um, and um, as I watched uh, those sessions over the years, um, it was really just very illuminating to me how, um, you know, there was so much more to it than that. So for example, we had, um, you know, some program facilitators uh, that really didn't, you know, want to follow the model at all. Um, and would actually even, so we had like this kind of video that would play um, throughout that had like vignettes and and a little bit of um, talking head kind of stuff, um, but also had like a timer because we knew that like, if we just let the conversation go, it would go all over the place. So there was a kind of a, a timed uh, discussion period. And, um, you know, a couple of the facilitators would just turn it off. They're like, we're just going to talk about what we want to talk about and focus on that. Um, right. And those sessions were like the most highly attended sessions. <laughs> <laughs> so even though they were they were necessarily covering the content exactly as it was written, you know, the, the family loved it. And then, um, you know, there were other situations where it was kind of like, um, there was just a lot of kind of creativity with how the program was delivered. And in some cases I felt like, you know, and, and they were all, um, we, we hired all of the, the program facilitators from, you know, similar communities to the ones we were working in with the expectation that, you know, the kind of cultural match would support um, 
the delivery. And in fact, it did because they would change things sometimes that uh, in ways that made them, I think, uh, maybe a better fit uh, even than and then we had attended. So um, that was kind of where I got on the path of like, there's so much more to it than just like, did you check every box on this, uh, um, you know, kind of manual um, and started looking at things like, um, you know, the implementation quality. So like kind of the rapport building and how clearly did they convey the information as well as, you know, the participants responsiveness, which is something that really, I think gets neglected in a lot of uh, DNI work. It's, um, uh, I'm sorry, dissemination implementation uh, research uh, hasn't really highlighted the experience of uh, the participants, I feel like, in the way that it should. Uh, right. So uh, that's where I really got into Durlac and Dupree and started like thinking about all those different components and how do we measure those and how do we, you know, create, um, you know, like theories out of these, you know, many taxonomies are out there. Um, and to really understand what's going on in these sessions and how we can make them a better experience for families and more effective. Right. And so this whole idea of implementation fidelity, right, or program mm -hmm. fidelity is something that people, you know, I've seen in the literature have been talking about for, you know, 20 years. Yeah. But when you look at a lot of um, effectiveness trials, looking at, you know, a program evaluations, hardly anybody's collecting data on implementation fidelity. So can you tell us what implementation fidelity is and why it matters? Yeah, so so one one really tricky thing is that everybody's using different terms to mean different things or, or different terms to mean the same thing or the same terms to mean different things. So when I say fidelity, I'm kind of talking about like, did they go point by point and do everything they were supposed to do? Um, and then I use quality to kind of talk about um, you know, the the skills with which they delivered the program. But sometimes people lump those into one thing, one overarching thing called fidelity. Um, so I think, you know, we're really all still kind of coming to agreement on, on our use of terms. Um, but it's, it's really challenging uh, to measure. It's uh, very time consuming, it's expensive. Um, you know, when you're looking at these um, large scale trials, which we need to do to be able to really understand like how to support um, the implementation of uh, evidence based prevention in, you know, routine settings. Um, you know, so so when we can, when I, I you know I had a grant to look at the uh, the implementation of the New Beginnings program within the context of an effectiveness trial, we actually got like a second R01 just to look at the um, the implementation. So that you know that makes it really challenging. Um, most people don't have the luxury <laughs> of getting uh, multiple right. funding mechanisms, you know, just to look at the implementation. So. Um, you know, we really need uh, to develop, um, you know, there's been talk for, for a long time, too, about, you know, kind of efficient, but also valid measures of implementation. Um, you know, the, the literature seems pretty, um, you know, set that like just asking uh, facilitators if or, or program providers, if, if, if they did, you know, if they implemented with fidelity, they say yes. <laughs> right. And then there's that whole lot of validity to that. Um, but and on the other hand, you know, if we're thinking about, you know, sustainable models for because we don't want to just measure fidelity in a 
you know, within the context of effectiveness trials, we know that it's important uh, going forward. So we need to figure out ways that we can uh, measure it in community settings when it's measured. I mean, when it's uh, when programs are delivered ongoing. So, um, it, yeah, so it's a really tricky thing. There, there, there are some kind of innovations. One thing that's really cool, I've been working with a couple folks who are um, using machine learning, computational linguistics strategies to kind of automate the coding of, um, of implementation of multiple domains, so quality, fidelity, responsiveness. Um, and I, I think that that has a, a strong potential. There's always, you know, challenges associated with like, you know, you need to get the recordings of the sessions and all of that. But um, that's definitely one uh, potential mechanism that we might be able to do it. Also, you know, kind of thinking about like participant report uh, of, of some of the components uh, could be effective. But yeah. The, I think, you know, the reason that that it's just not being measured or me being measured well enough is is a resource constraint issue. Yeah. And and I've done some work examining implementation fidelity, particularly looking at teen pregnancy prevention. And mm -hmm. we published a study a couple of um, years ago where we were looking at a school based teen pregnancy prevention program. And we were operationally defining implementation fidelity, kind of like, you know, dose and reach yeah. participant responsiveness you know, attendance, um, session quality, looking at, at, at adaptations and adherence and looking at why facilitators made adaptations or um, adherence. And when I talk to uh, folks at conferences and even when I, my graduate students, we address this idea of implementation fidelity. And one of the things that I used to say was, you know, hey, we need to implement these programs with you know, as much fidelity as we can. We need to train the facilitators and, you know, we need to get a cookie cutter. And one <laughs> yeah. of the things, right? And one <laughs> of the things that I, I've learned is that no program is implemented with 100% fidelity, you know. And I had a student a couple of years ago ask me, well, what percent of, of all of these implementation fidelity factors do you think you'd need to have in order to make sure the program had the effect, you know, that you wanted? So say, let's say, a, you know, a reduction in unprotected you know, sexual intercourse or something like that. And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, mean, I don't, I don't know. I'd like to be able to say, you know, 80%, right? you know, but I don't know. So the question I'd have for you is in terms of like primary prevention programs. So like, you know, obesity prevention programs with youth or, you know, HIV prevention or even alcohol, tobacco, and other drug prevention. What do you think are, are the most important implementation fidelity factors? Is it adaptation? Is it adherence? Is it dose? Is it reach? Is it session quality? Well, this is going to be um, probably a really boring answer, but it depends. <laughs> um, I think, you know, one of the biggest challenges is that, you know, we have these kind of theories about how our programs work, but we have not tested those theories. So we can't say for sure, you know, what matters the most. Um, so until we have that information, you know, we really don't know, like, 
you know, it's, it's, it's just conjecture. Um, I think, you know, there are a lot of things going on. So, you know, a lot of the prevention programs we see um, declines in parent depression. Why is that? You know, even when it is not targeted. We also have lots of like spillover effects in the prevention world that we were not expecting. That's kind of how I went down the uh, obesity path with one of the programs I was working on. We found like effects on obesity. So it was like, oh, well, let's, let's pursue that and see where that goes. I really, you know, kind of believe in the, the whole person approach, but um, but yeah, so, so like maybe it's, you know, th things like, is it delivered via group or, you know, via like an individual intervention? Like maybe that makes a difference for, um, you know, the effects of the program. So that, you know, that's a key piece of, of fidelity, but, but if it is like the, the nature of like being in a group-based intervention, you know, then it maybe it depends on like who's in the room with you and, and if they're, kind of, you know, positively oriented towards um, improvement, uh, then then that's the factor that matters. Um, so I think we really need to do a better job of like kind of understanding like what, why our programs work and who they work for. And then we could really say, um, you know, what pieces of implementation are most important. Um, so <laughs> I know that was kind of a non-answer, but Okay, let me say one thing though is that in in the research that I that I have been doing, uh, it seems like you know there are kind of mediational pathways going on between you know the um, the program facilitators delivery of it and then the you know from a you know family based uh, program their engagement with it. And it's not like what's happening, you know, really during those sessions, it's happening. It's what's happening at home um, between the sessions in everyday life. So it's the um, the parents ability to, you know, take uh, the material, engage with it and actually, you know, put it into practice. That's really driving the effect. So so I've done analyses looking at, you know, parents' use of the home practice skills. And that, you know, fully mediates the, the effects of like quality and fidelity on um, improvements in the, the targeted outcomes. So if you had to, you know, if you wanted to like pin me down and you had to pick one thing to measure, I would say, you know, participant responsiveness and especially like use of, of the program skills um, in terms of uh, what was the, and then, of course, like then working backwards to, um, you know, the fidelity and the quality, they're both important for making sure that, you know, people are coming to sessions and that they're doing the skills correctly and all of that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, based on what I looked at, I'd, I'd have to say responsiveness. So the question I get most often in, in my world of doing substance use prevention and teen pregnancy prevention is, you know, you've got this program and it's demonstrated effectiveness, you know, in a, in a randomized control trial that was conducted by, you know, university-based researchers. Yep. And it maybe had been conducted in a, in a public school setting or even in a hospital setting. And then people want to take that, that particular program and they say, okay, now we want to implement it with a different population or we yep. want to reduce the number of sessions from, let's say, 12 sessions, 12 one-hour sessions to eight sessions. Um, what is your feeling about how practitioners can best think about adaptation versus adherence? 
Yeah. Um, you know, I really wish uh, that more um, community research partnerships were happening because I think that's really what we need. Um, because, you know, as I was referring to earlier, we don't really know necessarily the primary mechanisms and, you know, who things will work for and who they want. And there's kind of this like red light, green light approach uh, that some programs use to say like this adaptation, you know, might be good, uh, but this, you know, this other one might might be bad and detrimental to um, program outcomes. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think without like really understanding the theory behind the programs and how they apply to different populations, um, that's a really tricky thing uh, to be able to, to make those determinations. Um, so I would love to see the field move into um, you know, the direction of researchers really partnering uh, with communities because researchers really need to know more about, um, you know, kind of what the context is. You know, a lot of our programs have gotten, you know, it's kind of a, you know, a good and a bad situation where, you know, now we have decades of evidence supporting the programs, but that also means that the programs are like decades old and somewhat dated. And some of the things that come up, you know, might not be relevant anymore, or there might be new things that need to be considered that, you know, the program doesn't include. So, um, so we really need both, you know, communities to learn from researchers about the theories behind the program and the core components and things like that. But we need researchers, prevention scientists to be embedded into in the communities to understand like, what are the issues that are going on now? And what are the implications of that for, you know, program redesign? Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, and that leads me to my next question, which is, um, how do we reduce the research to prevention practice gap? So, you know, you've talked about the fact that we have, you know, 10, 20 years of, of some pretty good information about what works in preventing drug use or, you know, uh, parenting programs or even early childhood intervention programs. Um, but oftentimes what we see happening in the real world doesn't reflect that evidence-based. So how can we as, as researchers reduce that prevention practice gap? Yeah, I, I would, you know, I would say, you know, really, it's the, it's the, um, the partnerships and, and the like mutual learning. Um, because, you know, we, you know, our history is that we were designing things just to see if it would work, you know, and then in like 20, 30 years ago, we didn't even know if this would work. So it was just kind of a, well, let's give it a shot. But now that we know, you know, that there's some signal there, um, we really should be starting with, you know, both the, the, the people who who would benefit from, you know, a program, folks, you know, experiencing health disparities, those kind of things, and um, the context in which it's going, the program is going to be delivered, um, and really putting those things first, and not developing <laughs> programs that, you know, will sit on a shelf for 30 years. Uh, that doesn't fit <laughs> anyone. So um, it's really that like, you know, kind of mutual like exposure and uh, and partnership to um, to reduce that, that. It's just critical. We, we can we will not be able to reduce that gap unless we start uh, doing more um, research community partnerships. Okay, let's move into our lightning round. I'm going to ask you some uh, questions. First thing that pops into your mind, just go ahead and respond. Are you ready? 
Okay. <laughs> what sport were you good at in high school? Sailing. What is your favorite movie from the 1980s? The Princess Bride. As you wish. <laughs> what is your favorite Girl Scout cookie? Tagalongs. What is one thing your parents don't know that you did when you were a teenager? Um, <laughs> I plead the fifth. <laughs> There's got to be something. <laughs> Uh, nothing that I could <laughs> talk about online. They might watch this. <laughs> right. Or your students might hear this. Yeah. <laughs> Even worse. <laughs> okay. What's the most number of hours you've watched TV in a single day? Ooh. Uh, I used to really enjoy watching like trilogies, like beginning to end. So like Star Wars or Indiana Jones. So that must be about, um, would you say like six hours or seven hours, something like that. What is a chore that needs to be done at your house right now, but you don't want to do it? Hmm. I have a puppy um, who <laughs> continually like destroys everything in the backyard. So right now I think he has destroyed the um, the fake logs in our little gas fire and I need to go clean those up. What does a person need to be happy? Oh, um, friends and family. Well, Dr. Burkle, thank you for spending your time with us on the Prevention Matters podcast. I really appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. It was a great time. The Prevention Matters podcast is the official podcast of the National Prevention Science Coalition. To find out more about the National Prevention Science Coalition or to become a member, please visit www npscoalition.org. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please click on the subscribe button.